0: Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Carpus, co-founder of Meditation Studio and your host on Untangle, along with my co-host, Ariel Garten, one of the founders of brain-sensing device Muse. Join us each week as we introduce you to authors, experts, and thought leaders who share their stories on how meditation, mindfulness, and brain-focused practices have the power to change our lives. Whether you're just learning to meditate or want to deepen your practice, Meditation Studio, with hundreds of guided meditations and over 50 amazing teachers, and Muse, which provides great feedback on your practice, are two awesome tools you'll want to have in your back pocket. Now, on to the interview. Today's guest is Michael J. Gelb. Michael is a New York Times bestselling author and one of the world's leading authorities on creative thinking and innovative leadership strategies. In this interview, we talked about his new book, The Art of Connection, Seven Relationship Building Skills Every Leader Needs Now. He reminds us how important relationships are, and he shares why we all need to learn to listen more deeply, be more empathetic, judge a bit less, take things a little less personally, and even more thoughtfully choose who we spend our time with and how we spend our time. He's chock full of practical advice and tools that are pretty life-changing. Now, here's Michael. Michael, thank you so much for being on Untangle today. We're so excited to have you.
1: I am thrilled to be with you.
0: Yay. So you wrote a book called The Art of Connection and it's about relationship building skills that you suggest every leader needs now. And I'm curious, why did you choose to write a book about relationships and why is this so important for us?
1: Well, I've written a number of other books about creativity and innovation. I wrote one called How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci and then another called Innovate Like Edison. And yet another (laughs) called Discover Your Genius, where I profiled 10 of the greatest geniuses who ever lived and how they can inspire all of us to develop our genius potentiality. And the genius thinking part is actually the easy part. The challenging part, once you have a fabulous, great, wonderful, brilliant idea, is how you're going to really apply it, how you're going to manifest it, how you're going to make it so. And that requires Relationship. That requires connection. That requires working intelligently with others. So I thought it was time to put in one book the essence of everything I learned that's really important about how to build those relationships and nurture those connections so that you can make your genius dreams come true. And beyond that, just intrinsically, it turns out that the sense of connectedness with others is the greatest element in a happy, fulfilling, long, and beautiful life. So that's why.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a good reason, right? And then you talk about meaningful relationships and how they come from these kind of real and I must say precious interactions that we have with one another and that we can solve the toughest problems and that these are the keys to really, really deepening our relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that, just how you think about sure. that?
1: Sure. Well, I made up a Latin motto because I think it helps if something's really, you want to emphasize something, put it in Latin. So <laughs> <laughs> That's great. The, the motto is conjungere ad solventum, and it means connect before solving. And this is a principle that actually emerged out of psychotherapy, the great pioneer of client-centered therapy, Carl Rogers, recognized that if he could just connect with his patients, if he could give them a sense of what he called unconditional positive regard, that they were just seen and appreciated and loved for being who they were without any attempt to try to change or fix them, that as if by magic, the process of simply connecting with them in this fully present, loving, and accepting way seemed to create the context that allowed them to heal, that allowed them to begin solving what seemed in many cases to be intractable problems. And I've observed that the same phenomena is true if one is facilitating a problem-solving session in a big company, if we're trying to do work on business development or new products or how to restructure the company, whatever it happens to be, that getting people to be fully present just changes everything. It just makes the problem-solving effort so much different. It calls on different energies, different consciousness, different awareness. So the problem with problem solving is that people, especially in U.S. culture, are becoming increasingly transactional. They're focusing on getting it done, on doing the deal, on the business, on the external phenomenon, and losing touch with the human factor. This is timeless wisdom, but it feels particularly timely now.
0: Right. I really like what you mentioned about Carl Rogers and this sort of unconditional positive regard, because to me, that sounds like, and this we know for sure, that people have a need to be heard and listened to. And I think what you're saying is that if we connect with someone, if we listen to what they have to say, everything after that becomes much simpler, so that when you're solving a problem, everyone's present to solving that problem because they're not stuck in their emotional muck.
1: Yes. And if you frame it that way, it's just common sense. It makes right. sense. <laughs> right. It wouldn't make sense. Whatever your intention was, hopefully you have the highest intention for creating the greatest good for all of the stakeholders and whatever the venture is. But even if you were wanting to uh, exploit them and take advantage of them, either way, it would make sense to be quiet and listen first. Having said that, what Rogers realized is it wasn't just a strategic exercise mm-hmm. in question of bringing a heart quality of compassion. And it's fascinating that this was followed up with this study of different systems of psychotherapy mm-hmm. to find out which one was most efficacious. And they looked at cognitive therapy and gestalt therapy and psychoanalysis. And first of all, they found that whatever the modality of therapy, about a third of the patients seemed to pretty much stay the same, about a third actually got worse, and a third got better. So they said, okay, there doesn't seem to be any particular difference on these modalities of therapy, but if we look at the patients who improved, is there any commonality that those patients experienced that we can correlate with their improvement? And there was. It was what the researchers referred to as accurate empathy. In other words, whatever the modality, the therapist working with the people who actually improved was able to tune into them in an accurate way so that they felt, yes, you really understand and seem to care about what it is that troubles me. So that's what a wonderful secret for all of us in our everyday relationships with everyone we meet, and especially if you're in any kind of leadership position, this seems to me a core essential, which is why I emphasized it in The Art of Connection.
0: So what's curious to me, though, is that you mentioned the strategic quality versus a heart intention. I think it's hard for people that haven't gotten to a place of maybe learning how to be more empathetic or compassionate to make it more heart-focused than strategic. And do you find that when you're training leaders, they feel like, okay, how do I get this done? Versus what's real and true and authentic? Because I think people really do, to your point, I think they really do feel that the realness versus how you're playing the game.
1: Yes, I have to deal with people viewing my attempt to teach them this timeless wisdom and awaken their consciousness and their compassion and their sense of the interconnectedness of all of creation. And they want that in a transactional, how fast can you give that to me? Right, right. (laughs) Yes. Is there an app for that. So this is part of the challenge. But the good news is that when I get them in the room, what I discover, and this always delights me, is that even people who we think there's just no hope, and it seems that they're purely transactional and they're just viewing the world and therefore obviously themselves as objects and they're completely mission-driven and focused on measurable results and metrics. And as one of my clients recently said to me when he had to postpone our meeting, he said, I'm slammed with deliverables. (laughs) Right, right, of course. And yet that client, we found time. I went in and did a Qigong seminar for his department and shifted their energy and I find there's a yearning more than ever to access and connect with the soul and then find a way to link that richer, deeper, fuller, timeless quality with the execution of everything that's on your to-do list. (laughs) I'm really I'm devoted to helping my clients find that integration. And the biggest block for a lot of them is they just didn't know it was possible. They don't know. They're not aware that they can actually be more successful over time by accessing this element of their inner life. And once that starts to dawn on them, it's transformational and it keeps inspiring me. I love what I do more than ever. And I've been doing this only for 38 years.
0: I'm really curious about the seven methods. You make this really tangible in your book. There are seven things that we need to do to optimize our professional and personal lives and these are the keys to really enriching our relationships and i am curious so like as we go through each of these i'm really curious if people are more excited about doing this when they realize it can help their personal lives in addition to their professional lives so let's sort of weave that in as well
1: that's the other major point i try to make in both the introduction to the book and also when i'm setting the context for going through the seven leadership skills is to shift out of what i think is an outdated notion of they used to call it work life balance right you know if you think your work isn't your life that's an issue because you're going to be spending most of my clients are spending a good part of their life in the workplace, Mm -hmm. focusing on what they call their work. It's really important to use your creative thinking to make sure that your work is an expression of your human values of who you are as a person, because why would you sign up to split off yourself and just do this transactional thing to earn some units of currency so that you could Go and have this small little thing called a life for a shrinking part of your actual day. I've looked at that notion as a vestigial one and work with readers and clients to change their notion of who they are and what they do and what's their life and what's their work and how to bring them together in a way that's enlivening and exciting and engaging and fun.
0: Yeah, well, I think we all feel more aligned when our personal and professional worlds are connected. So I think that's awesome. Let's start with the first method, which you call embracing humility. And I'm curious why you feel like this is a real source for, yeah. of genuine strength for us and how it connects to our feelings of vulnerability and how we manage our feelings of
1: vulnerability. Yes, one of my other mottos, I don't have it in Latin yet, but it is <laughs> I have to call my Latin scholar buddy. He does it all for me. He's one of my great connections, but one of those mottos is that if you're not humble, you haven't been paying attention. And then, you know, the opposite of humility is arrogance. And what this comes down to is if you're relying solely on egotism to lead forth your venture, your enterprise, you will fail and you will be miserable sooner or later probably sooner moreover in just a simple terms especially in the world today i think it's always been true but now that people have more of a sense of what's possible no one wants to work with an arrogant person and this is research validated there's a lot of work in this area christine porath uh, one of the researchers who i interviewed for the book frames it very simply she says incivility is expensive If you have a workplace, which is based on the old modalities of hierarchy and domination and trying to get everyone to be the same, which is the opposite of diversity. (laughs) Here's the thing is that the organizational structure that we all, most of us grew up with anyway, is predicated on the military. And the reason is that when organizations, when companies started to become large enterprises, People said, well, where can we look at how large enterprises have been run? The only ones that really were run that people could use as role models were the military. So that was the idea of a command and control and setting objectives, and the way companies were organized was based on the military with top-down hierarchical systems and follow orders, and I say jump, you say how high. And that worked for a while, but even the military has changed that dramatically. So you've got to collaborate. You've got to get information from different sources. You can't afford to have people working on your team who you're not inviting to use all of their talents and skills. And what this does when you invite them to use their talents and skills, it creates engagement. They used to call that employee satisfaction. Now it's called engagement, but it Mm -hmm. correlates with the making your organization a great place to work and having people want to be there.
0: Your next method is similar in a way because you talk about how we use our emotions to bring out the best in others and that emotions are contagious. And how do we kind of inspire trust and creativity with people? And is that part of what you're saying that links back to humility, that we need to engage people with what's real in them, but also what's real in ourselves?
1: Well, it's just really simply that emotions are contagious, Mm -hmm. for better or worse. You ought to be careful about what you're going to catch and what you're going to spread. This is timeless wisdom, but we're validating it with contemporary research. There's a emerging discipline, computational social science, where the old positive thinking adage that you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with is a classic line delivered by a famous motivational speaker many years ago. And it turns out it's true. If those five people are In abusive relationships, if they are addicted to something, if they are unhealthy, if they eat bad diets, guess what? It's much more likely that you will have a poor diet, be unhealthy, be in an abusive or addictive relationship. If the five people you spend the most time with are compassionate and loving and filled with joy and laughter and healthy and fit, you're much more likely to be filled with compassion and joy and laughter and be healthy and fit. The implications are immediate and obvious, first of all, to the extent that it's possible. You want to curate your life so that you surround yourself with people who are inspiring and uplifting, but then recognize that you are either inspiring and uplifting other people with everything you do and say, or you're having the opposite effect. So then the other advantage we have in the world today is that we can look at the influences that we bring into our mind and heart. We can look at what we follow on our various social media. We can Mm -hmm. be very careful about what we watch on YouTube or other modalities. So I'm either expanding my mind with some amazing insight on science, or I'm focusing on the wisdom of some of the greatest geniuses who've Ever walk the earth.
0: So that's great to curate our life so we surround ourselves with uplifting people and uplifting media. But how do we shift our unconscious patterns? I know this is the next method, but how do we change really so that we can get past judgment, the judginess that we all have, or not taking things personally, as you suggest? How do we do this?
1: First, it really is acceptance. It's being fully Present with yourself and not judging yourself for the fact that you judge everything. Right? <laughs> when, I, when I first started, I went to my first meditation class when I was nineteen, and we learned this thing about non-judgmental awareness. It was the first lesson I think of my first meditation class. They said learn to look at things the way they are and let go of your opinion about everything. And I just noticed that I had an opinion about everything. <laughs> instantaneously. And then because I was an earnest student of meditation, I was really down on myself for being so judgmental. I use my non-judgmental awareness. But the first thing is to learn to laugh at yourself and be compassionate towards yourself in that regard. Because guess what? The tendency to judge everything is hardwired into the brain. And it's a survival mechanism our first programming is to survive. So if it's good for me, I like it. If it's bad for me, I don't like it. And that is the default setting of the human mind is me want, me not want, friend Mm -hmm. or foe. Once you recognize this, it's very liberating because you sort of notice that there's this constant commentary that's going to continue and your awareness Can now watch it and be free from it without having it drive you. It's a shift of awareness. You accept it, you see it, and you recognize then that it doesn't have to drive your decisions, your choices, or your actions. That is why I call it the first liberation. And then it leads to the second liberation, which is the freedom from taking everything personally. Mm -hmm. Again, this is ancient wisdom, but we are all subject to taking everything personally. It's the challenge of being in a body or seeming so that it seems like it's personal. And self-compassion, self-empathy, and humor. And the question is, how might I respond to this situation if I did not take it personally? If you knew that somebody was doing the obnoxious, something you've deemed as obnoxious, as something that you don't like, something that gets on your nerves, if you discovered that the reason they were doing it was because they had a brain tumor and the tumor was pressing on the part of their brain that immediately caused them to act that way and that they had no control over it and it obviously had nothing. It was just purely a function of this brain disorder that the person had. Once you think that way, immediately you don't take it personally and you'd be compassionate. Yeah. And number three is obviously avoid whining, complaining, and commiserating. Yeah. Uh, This is faux connection. It's a fake way of connecting. Yeah. Because... Oh, well, we're going to bond with other people by they'll tell us how miserable they are. And we'll say, oh, yeah, I'm really miserable too. And see, we're all together because we're all miserable. So that's how we connect. And it's just because we don't know better. But then you're just depressing each other's immune system and demobilizing your creative resources for actually dealing with whatever you need to deal with. So once again, just learn to watch this with a certain degree of compassion and amusement. And then you can make another choice.
0: And do you teach meditation and mindfulness practices in your workshops? And do you have your own practice that helps you focus on loving kindness and self-compassion and some of these other tools that you are referencing?
1: I wove this throughout the book, throughout the art of connection. connection. Yeah. It's more than ever before, we need to have a practice. We all need all the help we can get So I try to offer lots of different options and ways in. We call it meditation or we qigong or whatever practice we use. The way I think about it is there's always this broadcast. Your antenna has static. So if we just clear the static, you're getting the divine broadcast and we're just tuning you up. So a lot of ways to tune people up. And yeah, I practice them and teach them. And it's the heart and the core of everything that I do.
0: I want to... Kind of quickly go through the last four methods are transcend fixation, which is focusing on kind of what limits us. And then you talk about balancing energy exchange. What does that mean in a relationship? Are you a giver or a taker? And then one I really, really love is be a rare listener. And I really want you to talk about that. And then the last one is really about approaching conflict, which I think is essential, and I know you do too, you know, how do we turn the friction that we have with people into creativity? And so can you just hit on a few really key points that you think are important for us to take away with those last four methods?
1: Sure. Sure. Well, transcend fixations is all about self-knowledge that comes through various tools for understanding, such as the Myers-Briggs or the Insight or Mm -hmm. the Enneagram, I encourage my clients to do multiple personality typologies and then look for correlations between the different systems and then to recognize that no type is better than any other type and that transcending fixation means learn what your proclivities are and then do the opposite. Cultivate. Is
0: that how you break the habit?
1: Yes. This is where Jungian depth psychology meets Seinfeld, because this is known as the inferior function in Jungian psychology. It's that which you're just awkward in. So I'm an extrovert. So I have a meditation practice. I take time every damn home. I walk in the woods for an hour in silence and I shut my device off and I resist the tendency to just grab it and call someone and talk because that's my hard wiring. That's Mm -hmm. my fixation. So I do the opposite. And obviously for an introvert who is more comfortable walking in nature in silence, their challenge is to go at the next meeting they're attending and walk over and introduce themselves to four or five people and then introduce those people to each other. Uh, So this is just really right at the edge of how we really grow. And it emerges into a very important element of leadership especially now as the workforce becomes more diverse, which I call versatility. And that is that as a leader, since you're leading people who are not all from the same background, from the same gender, from the same orientation, from the same training, you have to be able to be empathic with different kinds of people. So the more empathy you have, the more freedom you have from your one automatic operating system, the better able you'll to inspire and engage and align with a diverse group of people. That's transcending fixations. Balancing energy exchange, it's the difference between heaven and hell. Hell is when I'm focusing on my needs and you're focusing on your needs and I'm trying to get more for me and you're trying to get more for you and everybody's trying to get more for themselves. And heaven is when we are focusing on each other's needs and Feeling a sense of overwhelming gratitude and abundance because we're almost in a healthy competition to see who can care for the other more. And that's heaven. And most people live in purgatory where we're going back and forth between these two and trying to adjust. Adam Grant, the brilliant professor at Wharton, wrote this book called Give and Take. And he talks about givers, matchers, and takers. And he makes the point that givers are at the top and the bottom of success metrics. Why? Mm. Because when givers are surrounded by other givers and matchers, they'll go to the top. They'll be super successful, fulfilled, and happy because they're getting the support they need. But if a giver is surrounded by takers, that giver tends to become an enabler, gets exploited, burns out. And even though they want to try to do good and serve, their ability to do so is compromised by the fact that their resources have been drained by the takers. Now, most people are what Grant calls matchers who are looking at the quid pro quo all the time. Grant's advice, which I strongly concur, is to become what he calls otherish. In other words, be a giver, put other people first, but have the matcher competency so that when you give, you check. Am I giving to a giver fine. Am I giving to a matcher? Okay. Am I giving to a taker? Caution, caution, caution. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: But this is, it truly is the greatest joy in life, is giving to others in a way that is enriching and enlivening and healing and empowering. I mean, what's better than that? He has to do it in a way that also truly allows you to be nurtured and fulfilled. So it's finding the balance of energy exchange, doing this in your marriage, with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, with your colleagues at work, in your whole life. It's the difference between heaven and hell. So I prefer heaven. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so being a rare listener, listening is like driving. Everyone thinks they're above average and it can't be true. And it's the same thing with listening. Most people will be happy to commiserate about how nobody ever listens to them and how rude they are and they interrupt and they look at their phone or their device or they roll their eyes or they're distracted in some way or the other. But, of course, they must be wonderful, compassionate, fully empathic, completely present listeners. Well, guess what? My humorous note here is that I don't know if The Art of Connection, if the book is going to sell that much to people who will buy it for themselves because of this problem. Mm. But I think the big sales are going to be gift book.
0: Mary, you need to do this. Try method number six.
1: (laughs) Number six. This is my joke. This is the chapter that everyone is, you will read.
0: (laughs) Right. I want you to be one of my top five people, but only once you read this number six. That's
1: right. You got it. So rare refers to the fact that the experience of empathic listening is something that most people report as being rare. And it's also an acronym for being receptive and appreciative and then reflective and then inquiring. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So be fully receptive when someone's speaking to you, and genuinely actually appreciate the uniqueness of that being. Then be prepared to reflect back, not just the words they said, but the feeling tone of what they said. And then inquire, ask to be sure that you understood. Ask follow-up questions, and also ask follow-up questions to be sure that you were understood when you've spoken. These are the competencies of a rare listener that can be cultivated, and the result is more heavenly relationships.
0: Yeah. I think that's so key to any relationship. And I think that should be number one, actually. <laughs> well,
1: you know, I'll tell you why we, you, except I saved it for number six, because we're building, first, you need to be humble. You need to recognize the power that your emotions have, for better or worse, on others. If mm-hmm. you free yourself, from the, if you achieve the three liberations, if you understand the balance of energy exchange and transcend fixations, you're actually ready to begin real listening. So if that's the logic of this. And then it leads to the seventh one, which is turning friction into a momentum. If you can't practice the first six in harmonious circumstances, then there's very little likelihood that you'll be able to apply them in conflict. So conflict is the real test of the first six skills. It was one of the Roman statesman orators who said, anyone can hold the helm when the sea is calm. But once the waters get rough, now your ability to listen empathically, to avoid your fixations, to focus on the needs of the other side become that much more critical.
0: Absolutely. So is there a way for us to behave so that we can use conflict in our best interest?
1: There are a number of ways. My first rule of conflict management is don't make it worse.
0: Good, good plan. Don't
1: make it worse. So inhibition of your habitual tendencies is the first thing. It's to pause, it's to inhibit, it's to create that space. And this is where, again, it really helps to have a practice. Because if you're not working on refining your nervous system, on freeing yourself from automatic reactivity on creating more spaciousness all of the counsel in this book is theoretical yeah to be able to really apply it in a life situation where you're under stress you want to be cultivating you want to be strengthening the sense of spaciousness within your nervous system so meditating doing qigong going to yoga walking in nature whatever modality works best for you or whatever combination of modalities work best for you, some daily practice. Because you can't start your practice when suddenly your boss confronts you with some very challenging feedback or your child or your partner brings up an issue that will get right to your deepest vulnerabilities. Even if you do have a practice, just remembering, well, okay, don't make it worse. Don't make it worse. Don't make it worse. The other thing, DPS, don't press send. That's a good... (laughs) Don't press send.
0: (laughs) I love that. Oh, my God. That is great. Don't press send even in your voice, whether you're on email or in a conversation. That's right. Use your judgment there, your judgment that you've learned through reading your book. So I know we could go on forever and I hope you'll come back because I do think that there's more here. I certainly have more questions, but I think people will need to run out and get the book, The Art of Connection, because there are so many amazing nuggets for how we can sort of improve and repair relationships both at home and at work. So I'm really grateful that you wrote this book and that you were able to share some of the nuggets today with us.
1: It's my pleasure. Wonderful to connect with you.
0: Yeah. Thank you. For more information on Michael, check out his website at michaelgelb.com. And his books are available at all major booksellers. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at, patricia at meditationstudioapp.com And don't forget to download Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next time.